the Jewish views on Mitzvah Day 2016. We'll find out what's in store for this year's event. Resource, we hear about the charity that helps the community back into employment. And we meet a visually impaired cyclist and his cycling partner who defied the odds to raise money for Norwood. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. An Israeli government committee has voted to press ahead with a law which will retroactively legalize 2,000 homes on the West Bank. They're currently deemed to be illegal, but an ultra-nationalist minister of the pro-settlement Jewish Home Party wanted to avoid the demolition of Amona, home to about 40 settlers, and built on private Palestinian land. A judge ordered the settlers to leave by the 25th of December. The settlement vote was opposed by Benjamin Netanyahu and the opposition leader Itzhak Herzog, amongst others, who said it was indefensible. The proposed law, though, must still pass through Parliament. In Stamford Hill, swastikas and expressions of hate were daubed on cars and vans parked opposite the entrance to a Jewish girls' school. In a separate incident, stickers reading Nazi-controlled zone were stuck on lampposts and doors in streets around Liverpool on Remembrance Sunday. Merseyside police confirmed officers are investigating. The social media giant Twitter has announced a series of measures to tackle a sharp rise in online abuse, including bullying and harassment. It's admitted struggling to cope with abusive conduct, but is now expanding its mute feature so that entire conversations won't need to be seen. And it's giving a more direct way to report hateful comments based on such things as race and religious affiliation. Israel's Deputy Ambassador to the UK, Itan Nahe, has landed the key diplomatic role of new Israeli envoy to Turkey, the first in six years. The two former regional allies are seeking to improve relations after Israeli commandos killed nine Turkish activists in 2010. As part of a deal, Israel will set up a compensation fund for the victims' families in return for no legal claims against those soldiers involved in the incident. And our final story, angry parents at Yavna College have demanded an apology from the chairman of Radlett Synagogue after he complained that four girls from the fee-paying Jewish school had caused £850 of damage to the shul. Alex Pomerantz was reported to have told congregants that the girls' actions reflected badly on their college. And that's the news this week with the sport. Over to Andrew. Thank you, Viv. Israel kept alive their hopes of qualifying for the 2018 World Cup as they beat nine-man Albania 3-0. The win sees them clear in third spot in their group, a point behind the joint leaders Italy and Spain. However, only the group winners qualify for the tournament, with the eight best runner-ups taking part in a playoff tie. Closer to home, history was made on Sunday morning in the Jewish Football League, after the North London Raiders A recorded their biggest win in their 25-year history. The reigning Premier Division champions beat Division 1 side Los Blancos 12-0 in the Civil Annexing Cup, as they booked their place in the last eights of the competition. And finally, NFL's New England Patriots owner and philanthropist Robert Kraft has donated $6 million for the construction of a new multi-purpose sports facility in Jerusalem. The pledge was made as part of the celebrations to mark the 50th anniversary of the reunification of Jerusalem and the 20th anniversary of the Maccabea, which takes place in the city next summer. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at www.jewishnews.co.uk.
Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and features editor Fran Wolfish. Welcome to you both. We're going to start off, as we normally do, with the front page. And the headline reads, Record Number of Pupils attend Jewish schools. Yes, it's a story that affects virtually every reader. Every reader was either a student at school or is a parent or hopefully about to be one at some point. Record number of pupils attending Jewish schools. Most surveys only go back a day or a week or a month or a year. This one goes back 40 years and it shows that the number of Jewish children at schools in our community has increased fivefold in two generations, which I think serves as great testament to the incredible power of our Jewish schools and the influence I think that they have for all of us and the pride that we have in them all. The report is by the JPR, the Jewish Policy Research Unit, and they are showing that a total of 30,000 Jewish children are currently in the system studying at Jewish schools in the UK. I feel that this has been some sort of steady increase, though, because I'm quite convinced that last year we were also talking about record numbers of pupils attending Jewish school. Am I remembering that correctly, Fran, or am I imagining it? Well, there's definitely been a growth of Jewish schools, primaries and secondaries across London and other parts of the country. I think what's interesting is, says in the report, just 40 years ago, one fifth attended a Jewish school. And obviously that picture is so very different today. I mean, I'm not quite of that age getting there. Um, And I remember going to, well, I started off at a Jewish primary, but that was considered unusual. And then I switched over to a non-Jewish primary and it was 90% Jewish there. So it felt as though it was a Jewish primary. And today the picture is completely different. My children will be going to Jewish primary schools because that is, you know, there's just so many more schools available now. It's funny how this has all changed, though, over the years, because to me, I never went to a Jewish school. I don't feel deprived for having not gone to a Jewish school. In fact, on the contrary, I think it has made my love of Judaism even stronger for not going. And the reason why I say that is because I had more of an intrigue about it and I wanted to learn more about it. And whereas I feel as if I went to a Jewish school, maybe, just maybe, it would be possible that it might have been a little bit not forced upon me, but it would have been so part of everyday life, I would have just taken it for granted. You, you say that, but I mean, I'm a product of a, a Jewish education. I went to the, the Sinai school in primary and then JFS. I mean, that's a lot of years, but it's a secular education. What a go. Uh, yeah, a long, long time ago. In fact, it's about 40 years ago when this survey stretches back to Jewish and secular education is at the forefront. And obviously the national curriculum is taught. It adheres to the Education Act. It's There are a lot of schools and the majority here, the, the number is that there were Jewish schools 40 years ago, there were 26. Now there's no less than 139. Wow. 90 odd of those are strictly orthodox, Haredi, unaffiliated, off the chart, shall we say. So we're talking about the ones that actually adhere to the national curriculum. They offer a very, very balanced and structured national curriculum and that's what I think Jewish parents find so appealing what what young people do with that information and that knowledge once they graduate and they and they leave with their exam results that's up to them one interesting thing just to finish off is that the numbers here are quite stark on the back of a fag packet I, I, I literally just wrote down the the statistics the number the size of the Jewish community we're talking about just before the war there were 300,000 Jews in this country in 1955 around the time just before when this survey kicked 
kicked in, there were 410,000 Jews in the UK. Extraordinary figure when you consider in the, the 2011 census there were just 263,000. So it's a, a five-fold increase over generations when the, the community has been shrinking at the same time, which I think is a real testament to Jewish education. I think that's really powerful, actually, and and shows that we're very... Oh, what a media term well, that is, really powerful. Well, well it, it is. It shows that we're, we're proud of our, our Jewish identity and we feel, you know, we want to embrace that for our children as well. So I think this is good news for us. Well, let's turn inside the paper now and have a look at the headline that reads Herzog U-Turn over Corbyn. This is on page two. And I'm guessing it involves two Labour leaders. What has occurred? Yeah, not, not wishing to focus too much on our favourite subject, which is Labour and alleged anti-Semitism. Isaac <laughs> Herzog, the head of the Israeli Labour Party, was very keen to set up a meeting with Jeremy Corbyn for obvious reasons over recent months. Isaac is going to be in London at the end of this month for the Bicom Jewish News Israel Policy Conference, which we're holding. Uh, we'll hear more about that in the show, I'm sure, in the weeks to come in Westminster on the 30th of November. And because he happens to be in Westminster on, on Jeremy's doorstep, he actually asked Jeremy Corbyn if he could have a meeting. Strangely, he then retracted that offer and said he hasn't actually got time to meet Jeremy Corbyn after all. Now, we're trying to knot together this story. And my uh, news editor, Justin Cohen, has been at the forefront of this. He broke the story over the last few days. Tom Watson, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, has been out in Israel this week and met with Herzog. And then it was soon after that that Herzog had his change of mind. Now, I'll, I'll leave our listeners to maybe figure out what might have been said between the two of them for Herzog to change his mind. But obviously, a meeting between the leaders of the Labour Party in Israel and the UK would be a very important thing for, for us as a community and for British politics. Now that's not going to happen. But we should clarify, though, we don't know for definite that it was Tom Watson's meeting no. that potentially changed his mind. It's just that the two went quite close together. Just, is that right? Just pointing out the timing. Right. Fair enough. Well, we're, the timing has been pointed out. We're laying out the facts, out. aren't we? We're, we're not making any We're not here to interpret them. No, okay. That's right. Oh, well, fair enough. You know, even so. And who knows? I'm sure that in the months and years to come, the two might eventually meet. Who knows? Let's move on, though, to Community Heroes. Now, this is an initiative of Mitzvah Day, which we're going to learn much more about later on in this very program. But in the meantime, in the paper this week, why are we looking for Community Heroes? Yeah, we do loads of initiatives, campaigns over the year. I think my favourite has to be Community Hero. Each year, four minutes for day, we take a look at the unheralded grassroots people that make our community so incredible, the people that give their all and ask for nothing in return. We have a short list of seven this year, which I'll, I'm not going to mention all of them by name, but one or two. Simon Cooper was a, an ambassador for the NHS Blood and, uh, and Transplant. He raised so much money for them. He tragically passed away earlier this year, and his associate Rebecca Wolf has taken on the mantle and is carrying on. Associate and sister, I might point out. His good work. Okay, do you know the family? I do indeed. Oh, well, I was actually a friend of Simon's, well, so I'm very, very pleased this. to see this. So, yes. Well, I yeah. don't even know really what to say other than that it was absolutely extraordinary. He was around on this planet for, I think, just around 33 years, which seems hideously unfair considering how much he went through in that time. And every single time, no matter what ailment, and I'm talking pretty serious illness, was thrown at him, he'd just overcome it every time. And he would always try and turn it into good. And the unfortunately, what finally got him was that he had a double lung transplant, which unfortunately, it is quite common with someone who has a lung transplant that they can 
turn and it almost becomes cancerous, which unfortunately it did with him. And regrettably, that is what, what ended his very short life. But absolutely extraordinary individual. I'm very, very proud to say I know him. And I'm even more proud to see that he's in there. Good. Well, I mean, I can't speak as movingly as you have just done of, of, of the other six, but Susie Gordon is another one on our shortlist who has been a real flag bearer for Mitzvah Day and has done some remarkable work. And Diane Lazarus, we've also got Jewish Blind and Disabled's very own Mary Berry, who's affectionately known as the Star Baker at that charity. So they're just a handful of the seven. And the winner, they're all winners, but the, the person who will take the trophy is going to be announced on the 27th on the day itself. Oh, we look forward to that. But of course, I do remain impartial throughout. Whoever wins the trophy, well done to them. It's all very well deserved. Let's move on to the final story. And what happened when Dylan met Joe Wicks? Who is Joe Wicks, for those of us who don't know, by the way, Fran? Well, I'm sure a lot of maybe the females in the audience might know who Joe Wicks is. He's also known as the body coach. And to his fans who admire his body, he has become known for being a phenomenal fitness coach anyway he is known for a series of books his third book's just about to come out actually and it's called lean and 15 this schoolboy came along his name is dylan pina he goes to jacos and he was bullied at school it's a little bit of a sad story because obviously kids can be cruel and they bullied him for being a little bit overweight but he picked up this book and he decided he was going to follow this health and fitness regime it's all about healthy eating and working out and trying to improve your body and he did an amazing job he basically shed just under three stone in six months he looks incredible now he snapchatted with joe wicks sent over some before and after pictures and joe was so impressed he actually invited the teenager to meet him and so the two met and, you know, and he posted it up on his social media account and it got 30,000 likes. It's just incredible. And a lot of people were just really, really happy for Dylan, as are we. We think it's, you know, it's a fabulous achievement and shows, that, you know, that you can achieve it, that you can change something about yourself that you don't like through, through healthy eating and exercise. Indeed. Well, well done him. And thank you very much indeed to both of you. That is all we've got time for, for a look at the paper for this week. But don't forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Can you believe that Mitzvah Day is nearly upon us once more? We mentioned it just now. Well, it's well and truly become a fixture of the calendar, thanks to its founder, Laura Marks. The 27th of November, we'll see people from all walks of life coming together in a bid to make the community around them a better place. And I've been speaking to the founder of Mitzvah Day, Laura Marks, and the executive director, Dan Rickman, to find out more about how the charity has developed over the years. And I started by asking Laura to remind us of the vision of Mitzvah Day. Mitzvah Day is a day of social action where people, Jewish-led, go out all around the world to connect with local charities, bring people together. And by bringing people together, we hope to form relationships and build local strong communities. And how long has it been going? Because it's been a few years now. Yes, well, we became a charity in 2008. We started at the JW3 in London in 2005. So uh, we're, we're almost grown up now. <laughs> Getting there slowly but surely. And Dan, with you working day in, day out on Mitzvah Day, it seems a bit strange to say day in, day out because you'd be forgiven for thinking Mitzvah Day is just one day of the year. So what do you actually do the rest of the year? 
Great question, and we actually get asked it a lot. Like any big event, there is so much work that goes into it. And also, when dealing with people and relationships, these things don't just happen overnight. So, for example, if we take our interfaith projects, you can't just be expected to turn up at your local mosque and run an interfaith project with with your local Muslim group. That takes time. It needs fostering. It needs developing. And aside from that, there's obviously things. This year, we've had a new website. We've had a new database. We've freshened up the brand. And these are all things that take take a lot of hard work over the year. And this, I assume, Laura, was exactly your vision for Mitzvah Day when you started it, however many years back, because initially, obviously, it was just a day of doing good deeds. But are you pleased with how it's coming along and progressing? Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, it was never doable in a day because, as as Dan said, it takes a long time to set these things up. And also, we want people to recognize that it has impact after the day itself. So, so many of our projects continue and they may continue in their exact form or they may continue in a slightly different form. So, for example, people may go to a care home on Mitzvah Day and they may have never been into a care home before. And so just getting through the door is something that Mitzvah Day enables them to do. And then when they're there, they have a wonderful time. They realize the great work that goes on and they may say, well, actually, we're not going to sing each week at this care home, but what we are going to do is fundraise for them or talk about them or visit them again or sort out their library or all sorts of things. And it's interesting because we can't necessarily even track what happens, but stories come up again and again where people say, oh, yeah, well, we went in on Mitzvah Day and that led to this. What would you say, and this could be to either of you, really, I guess, that you have maybe learnt or something that you've experienced that has really I suppose the word has affected you, but stuck with you probably is more what I'm looking for since you started working for or starting Mitzvah Day full stop. I think the thing that springs to mind for me is breaking down barriers. These things, like a lot of our projects, they're not that complex, if, you know, if we're honest with ourselves. Going to visit a care home, painting or redecorating somewhere, doing some gardening, it's being given the permission to do it and then the impact it has when you're there. So... I know myself, before I worked for Mitzvah Day, I'd never been into a care home. Now, how mad is that? that I'd never been into a care home. And once you're there and you're engaging with the residents that live there, you see that instant impact it has on them. And actually, myself, as a a volunteer, you gain so much for it as well. And let me just add on to that. It's had even more resonance when we talk about our interfaith work. So I'd been to mosques in all sorts of parts of the world. I'd never been to one in Britain never been to one in London. Now, how crazy is that? And what Mitzvah Day does is it allows you to break down these barriers with people who you wouldn't otherwise normally meet. And one of the themes that we're really very much picking up on this year, of course, is the whole post-Brexit, post-Trump feeling of anxiety that's going around with the spike in hate crime, the spike in racial attacks. We really see it as our duty and our, our our mission to break down these barriers. And a lot of them are because people have never met each other. Most people in Britain have probably never met a Jew knowingly. Well, that's our job to open the doors and just allowing people to do it and going along to the first meeting, that really turns us all on. I tell you what I find fascinating is that both of you have used the term that you think it is crazy that Laura you said that you've never been into a mosque Dan you saying you've never been into a care home but there will be people listening who think but hang on a second I don't have a need to go to certain buildings so why would you automatically say the word crazy it doesn't necessarily make someone a bad person does it it just means that there is scope to do better surely 
What I have found over the years is that most people are good people and most people want to do more good things and they don't necessarily know how. So we all give money because that's what we do and that's what's expected of us. But people would like often to do more. And what Mitzvah Day does is it by not raising money on Mitzvah Day, which is our biggest rule, really, you're forced to actually go and do something. So what we do is we take people's hand and we say, come on, guys, let's go do something together that maybe we've never done. Let's go past your your normal things. Let's go and, let's go and challenge our, our, our way we, we regularly lead our lives. And the reason it's crazy is because people want to do it. I, I genuinely believe that there is a, a desire to do more good. And we just facilitate that. And that's a, a pleasure. Well, people will have the chance on Mitzvah Day coming up. What can we expect from this year? Well, this year we've got around 1,200 projects going on in Britain. So not very much to choose from. Not a lot, no. If anyone's still sort of sitting in bed doing nothing, we think it's a disgrace. We've got also projects all around the world, probably about another, probably getting on for another five or 600 projects around the world, but probably they're not going to be listening to this podcast. They might. Ye of little faith, Laura. <laughs> uh, South Africa, Australia, you name it, we're there. There are a lot of projects this year focusing on refugees. And that's because, again, we really try to tap into what the current political climate is. And that's what everyone's talking about. What can we do? People say, what can we do for refugees? And whilst that sounds so easy to do, the reality is that it isn't. And the reality also is that we, what we need to do is support the existing infrastructure. We're not in the business of setting up new wheels. What we want to do is support charities that are doing good work because we don't know how to support refugees, but we do know how to support charities that are. So, for example, all four drop-in centres, there's four synagogue-based drop-in centres that support refugees and asylum seekers in London. We'll be doing things for them. We'll be collecting things for them. We'll be cooking things. We've got present wrapping. We've got making teddy bears. All this is stuff that we're doing specifically for refugees. We've obviously got uh, what I would call our bread and butter projects, collecting things outside supermarkets, taking them to homeless shelters. My favourite project and the one that our team, we, we have a team outing on Mitzvah Day and we all go and do a project. My favourite is going to an old people's home because I think it is it's where you feel it the most, where you feel that you're making a difference. Uh, so we'll be doing that. And really, as I say, we've got a website with all sorts of ideas on it. We encourage people, there's still a week to go, which is plenty of time to either connect with something that's already existing or get a group of friends together, register as a group. We call that a Mitzvah Day Active Group. Register, we'll send you some T-shirts, we'll send you some flags, and we'll even help you find a project. Excellent. So, Dan, I assume then the website is the place to go for all of that. Absolutely. So, mitzvahday.org.uk, or you're welcome to give us a call in the office, or you can email and we're here, we're ready, and the team is very keen to help match you up with some mitzvahs this year. Excellent. Well, just finally, I have to ask, Laura, when you started this, could you have possibly imagined that Mitzvah Day would have turned into this great enterprise that it has turned into? Not at all. I think that... What it's made me realize is, first of all, as I said before, people basically want to do good things. And, you know, my background's in marketing, and I know you can't persuade people to do things they don't want to do. And people want to do this. People want to do good things for good charities. They want to connect with people of other faith groups. They want to build stronger communities. And so 
together and we've got a fantastic little team here we've got 350 volunteer coordinators around the country and they're the people who really make it work and together as a team we we'll go on and we'll grow bigger founder of mitzvah day laura marks and executive director dan rickman talking to me there about this year's event for more information on how you can get involved then do go to mitzvahday.org.uk as dan has just said You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by journalist and author Jeremy Havadi and community volunteer Andy Lucas. They'll be discussing settlements in the West Bank. Plus, Kate Fulton will be talking to Ashley Fulton and Sam Cohen about their amazing fundraising achievement for Norwood. But first, over recent years, the ability to find and secure a job appears to be increasingly more difficult for some. The Jewish community is absolutely no exception to this, and the organisation Resource recognised this. Their ethos is all about helping the community back into employment. Clive Roslin has been finding out more about this for us by speaking to Victoria Sturman, the chief executive of the charity. Victoria Sturman, I must say, I'm sitting here opposite you and I really am very surprised because I've always thought that one of the things that Jews do is to get work. And it's most surprising to me that 8,000 people have found work through you since 1992. Absolutely, indeed. In fact, I would say over 10,000 people have found work through us. And you're right. Jews tend to fare quite well compared to the national average on unemployment. And despite record levels of employment right now, unemployment is at the sort of, uh, I think it's an 11-year high right now, there are still many, many people within our community who need our help getting back to work. And you've just been celebrating it because the Jewish News is all, all about it this week, great pictures of a party you had. That's right. Well, what we did is we did a workshop called How to Get a Job. And what we thought is we try and tell people about what Resource does so that those that don't know the service exists or those that feel a little bit reluctant uh, or sort of thinking about getting on the journey to their job search but haven't really got started they might feel like coming along so we did an event at JW3 on Friday morning where we gave delegates a sort of taster of what they'd see at Resource we did some top tips for how to get a job we had one of our motivational speakers called Nigel Risner do a workshop um, teaching people how they must focus on success and we had a question and answer session with a panel of resource advisors where we invited the delegate to pitch their questions employment related to our panel um, and a very lively bunch they were too over 40 people came along most of whom have since signed up to join resource and come to our our free program that we offer in Finchley Central. Now the people that come to you are they young are they middle-aged or are they all ages? There is absolutely no age limit or one size sort of fits all. We have people of school leaver age, university graduate, a big group in the 30s and 40s. And then we're helping people in their late 60s and early 70s. We have no upper age limit. There is absolutely no age at which somebody shouldn't or can't be helped to get a job. And similarly, at the lower age, we've had school leavers come straight to us to help them get a job. Now, there's been a lot of talking recently about the fact that Jews who are observant want to leave work at, say, on Friday nights in the winter Mm. at four o'clock in the afternoon and things like that. 
Is that something that you deal with? Absolutely. In fact, ahead of Shabbat UK, I know the chief rabbi had issued various statements and press releases encouraging people to approach their employer and ask them for time off to celebrate Shabbat. We take a slightly different approach. We don't advocate particularly going to an interview and saying I'm Shabbat observant and I would need time off more negotiating the job first, going to the interview and securing the job, winning the job, and then discussing the fact that as an observant Jews, there are a few Fridays. And after all, we're not talking about every Friday. We're talking about Fridays uh, where Shabbat comes in early. There is a, a handful. There's probably a handful that they would need to leave before about four o'clock. And talking about the fact that would, they'd like to come in early that day or work through their lunch, put in some extra hours other days. So really how they put it as a positive. And we find that employers are very, very happy to engage in this sort of conversation. In the end, they probably win. They probably, the employer probably is the winner here. They gain the loyalty of the staff member who probably overcompensates to make sure that they're not letting down their fellow employees or their bosses. But still at the back of my mind is this thought, why are so many Jews coming to you to try to find work? Because you think of Jews finding work quite easily in comparison to other religions. Yes, and I think that is because of our networks, our, our communities, our shuls uh, and everything else. Having said that, the difficulty that Jews find is the same as, as everyone else in terms of the the, the shame, the embarrassment, the stigma of being unemployed, that's no different. And, and possibly that's greater within the Jewish community where we like to celebrate our successes but are not so keen on talking about things that are perceived as less than successful. At Resource, we very much believe that the key to job search and that the way to be successful is through networking. And whilst Jews do tend to have very good networks, when we show them how to access them, often people will come to us and say, I've got absolutely no network at all. I don't know anyone. I'm not connected. You know, I really couldn't approach anyone. And actually, when they go through our services, we have individual help from a, an advise each client has an advisor or they we also have a range of workshops and seminars but throughout there's a theme of helping people learn how to network how to approach people who is their network and it, it turns out really that most people have very very good networks it's just a question of identifying them and, and learning how to access them and then practicing it because it doesn't come easily it doesn't come naturally to most of us going to a former boss or a former colleague or someone we sit next to in shul or in the golf club and say, you know, could I have a chat with you? Could, could I pick your brains over something? Most of us feel really quite awkward or quite uncomfortable. And, and, and that's one of the things that we spend a lot of time helping people build up the confidence, having the right sort of conversations, having the words to use such that when they, they leave us, they, they go home or they sit there in our, in our resource centre and they'll pick up the phone and they will, they will make that. So you call. don't actually find the job for someone. It's, it's all a matter of teaching people how to look for the job. Very much so. What we're trying to do, what we do do, and we do very well, is, is giving people the skills and the most of all the confidence to find that next job. So whilst we do have some jobs advertised within Resource, we have a small jobs board on our website where employers advertise their jobs with us. We also have a networking department where we aim to introduce people to prospective employers. Um, essentially, we're about teaching people the skills that they need because really these are life skills. It's not about finding somebody that next job. Really much more useful is to, to give them the skills if they find themselves in this position again in the future. And after all, jobs for life and are not really there anymore like they were you know, some years ago. It's important that they would then go back to these skills and look for their next job. Did you start it? So I didn't. Resource was started by Jewish Care. 
1992 and became an independent charity separate from Jewish Care about 15 years ago. So if anyone listening to us now is out of work and desperate to find work and doesn't know how to go about it, how do they get in touch with you? What they need to do is give us a call or look on our website. The phone number is, if I may give this, you do, please. it is 0208 346 4000. Say that again. 0208 346 4000. Our website is www.resource-centre.org. Do you want to repeat that one as well? I can do that again. It's quite hard to say. www.resource-centre.org. Best thing to do is give us a call. Have a look at our website to see what we offer, but give us a call and a friendly team of administrators in our office will give you a welcome. We'll have a chat with you and tell you what you need to do to join us. I mentioned the word join because we have a a programme where we like to sign people up as members. Having said that, this is a totally free service. There are no no fees involved. And whilst it is a programme, it is very much about tailoring it to individuals. This is not a one size fits all. This is about working working with an individual to understand, firstly, why they came to us, how they think we can help, and really what are their motivations, what are the barriers, why are they unemployed at the moment, and how we can help them. In the main, they will be introduced to an advisor who will work with them from the beginning to the end of their job search. So our team of advisors, we've got a very, very good team of highly skilled and experienced advisors, all volunteers, who work with our clients on, as you'd expect, they're developing a very good CV on writing covering letters. But more than that, thinking about their career strategy, really, you know, what it is they need to do to find a job. And at the same time, they'll be invited to attend a series of workshops and seminars that complement the work they're doing with their advisor. Chief Executive of Resource, Victoria Sturman, talking to Clive Roslin there about the work her organisation does in a bid to get members of the community back into employment. For more information, then you can always go to resource-centre.org. That's resource-centre.org. In just a moment will be this week's Schmooze, a reminder that we now live stream the Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm Greenwich Mean Time. That all-important address is coming up, but that means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And of course, we'll try and read out those comments as and when we get them. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. Now, in the words of Heather Small and the M people, what have you done today to make you feel proud? Well, if you're Sam Cohen and Ashley Fulton, then you've just embarked upon a massive cycling challenge in Israel, all to raise money for Norwood. What makes their achievement even more impressive is that Sam is visually impaired. To find out more about their story, Kate Fulton has been speaking to both Sam and her husband, Ashley. Just in case you're wondering, Kate started by asking Ashley what inspired them to take part in the first place. I enjoy cycling but I do regard it as a tiny bit of an indulgence from time to time. So I mentioned to Norwood about a year ago that I was very willing to help out in a a more meaningful way. 
And you ride on a tandem. And for those people that don't know exactly, only the person on the front part of a tandem has control. Yep, the person at the front does the steering and controls the gears and the brakes. And have you done this before? I had a short ride on a tandem about eight years ago at the back. So that's a weenie bit of experience, and that was as far as it went. And so you've been responsible for Sam, who we're going to talk to in a moment, for this whole Norwood cycle? Yes. And how long was it? The ride was a total of 350 kilometres over four and a half days, so just short of 65 or 70 kilometres per day. And how many times a day did you stop? We stopped mid-morning, around midday, mid-afternoon and at the end of the day, fairly regularly. And the stops were for feeding, mainly, and also for the slower people to catch up with the faster people. And needless to say, we were the faster ones. Yes, I bet you were. Yeah. Two of you pedalling on the tandem. Sam, you are on the back of Ashley's tandem. Hmm. Tell us a bit about yourself and your circumstances. I um, have Ashley syndrome, which is a due sensory loss. Uh, is, I'm blind and partially hearing. It's a progressive condition. I was approached by Norwood regarding about a challenge and... This Norwood bike ride was mentioned. I had no idea where we were going. So you've not been a rider before? No, no. Well, I have, when in my early days, when I I had my vision then, I had my own uh, bike and it was great fun then. And I lost my uh, independence about 15 years ago. So I didn't really have much to do with bikes anymore. And how have you found the training? It was really very short, the training, with about four or five months only. So you had a uh, lot to pack Ash- in. Yeah, yeah. So at first I thought sitting in the back of the tandem and let someone take full control and I said, no way. So I thought, give it a try. You never know. And Ashley, he's a very cautious person, no risk taker. So after two, three rides with him, things started to come together. You had to trust him completely. I mean, you mm-hmm. weren't... Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Up, uphill yeah. and down dale, you had to completely trust him. Very much so. so yeah. On the ride itself, yes. were there mountains? What was the terrain like? Oh, there were a lot of hills, dirt road, some traffics, but it was just, it was just brilliant. The first bike we would borrow from Tim, who, lives in, uh, who kindly uh, lent it to us uh, once a week, and then the new bike that we are riding on now kindly donated by Stephen Harrison, made everything come together. It was a rock-solid bike. It was about three and a half grand, all the top specs on it. And once uh, Ashley and myself tried it out for the very first time, everything was like clockwork. It was a brilliant, brilliant to come together. And how uh, did you feel when you're on this ride and you're going up and you're going up through Israel? How did you get the feeling or the sense of what was around you? So all I had was the sensation of smell and feel of the wind the sun and the motion of the speed on the bike. So Ashley, uh, bless him, he was able to uh, describe all this scene around me so in, in good detail. So I was able to build my vision mentally of everything around me. So that, that was a real bonus and so much to see being on the road in Israel, it's a very different perspective that rather than being in a car and so on, there's so much. Other people found my commentaries quite interesting, to my great surprise, and they would sort of uh, hover around us and, and listen. 
and then comment afterwards, which was very funny. I didn't expect that at all. So it became a little bit of a hive, a bit of a, a bit of a, yeah. a buzz around the, the tandem. Yeah. Describe the bit where you get to the end. You've been cycling for a whole week, maybe a bit nervous, new places, staying in you. How was it when you get towards the end? What did you feel? It was surreal, really. It's never done it before. Brilliant time and. I kept pinching myself at this wheel. It, it just was too fantastic to believe that it was all happening around me. And coming toward the end of the ride, in some way I felt, you know, I want to continue. Uh, you know, I had this, I didn't want to stop. And, you know, ended up in Tel Aviv. What I didn't know, I didn't know my wife was going to be on the scene. Ah, so you were surprised by your mm, wife. She came out. That's right. That's so lovely. Yeah. And, and so. amazing. How much money did you manage to raise for Norwood between you? We were discussing it uh, earlier okay. coming down. About so you're still 18, working 19, it out? Yes, it's so getting it's quite counting. close to about £18,000 so far, and there's more coming in. Excellent. Well done. And hopefully you're going to go on the next trek, 25 years of Norwood. Well, let's see. how. And that's quite an easy one. It's uh, a mere 100 miles a day. <laughs> Sam Cohen and Ashley Fulton talking to Kate Fulton there about cycling in tandem across Israel. You're listening to The Jewish Views. This is The Jewish Moves, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today is journalist and author Jeremy Havadi and community volunteer Andy Lucas. The subject today is based on what we heard in the news with Viv earlier on. An Israeli government committee has voted to press ahead with a law which retroactively legalised 2,000 homes on the West Bank. The question is, how do we feel about West Bank settlements? And as Jews, what do we believe is the ultimate solution to one of Israel's biggest problems. Jeremy, let's start with you. Do you worry how the world will react to more controversy over the West Bank? I do when it's self-inflicted. A lot of the concerns, I think, are not valid. And obviously, the decisions that Israel has to make in regards to its position in the West Bank, those decisions are being largely, almost entirely, in fact, related to security issues. And of course, there we could look at Palestinian rejectionism and so on. But I think in regard to this story, that's not the perspective I'd take. I think this is a very bad decision and a self-defeating one, because what this committee is is voting to do, what it wants to do is to, is to effectively bypass the decision made by the Israeli Supreme Court that has said that these outposts are illegal and that they should be evacuated. I don't really understand that. Well, I do understand the long term strategy, but I think it's one which is ultimately harmful to Israel because what it will do is it will say, in effect, that any time that there is a new sort of, well, any time there has been an outcrop which has been set up illegally and deemed illegal, it can somehow now be legal. And I don't really see how that's, how that's morally right. I can't help thinking you're absolutely right. And what would a man like Rabin say if he was still here today about this? What do you think, Andy? I think he'd say definitely no. They've taken over. It's it's not the general run-of-the-mill Israeli that has taken over on this business. It's 
the is it the right wing who extreme I don't know, right wing, yeah, extreme right wing I don't know the difference between right and left but it's the extreme right wing who just have suddenly gone against everything all the laws and Jeremy's quite right it's not good for Israel you know it it puts Israel in a very very bad light with the world not just with with the Israelis but with the world and it can cause even more problems than we're facing now. Yeah, but the opposite makes us look like a pushover, surely. Pushover? Makes us look weak, doesn't it? No, no, not at all. Because I don't think we should, you know, we should be in certain areas of the West Bank anyway. So Benjamin Netanyahu has said in the past that the Golan Heights will always remain in Israeli hands. Yeah. There is no difference between the Golan Heights and the West Bank. Now, the, the right in Israel have said... Why aren't you saying about this about the West Bank? So, so why is there this such a huge difference between the two? Why are we treating one region differently from another? Adam, I there thought is. most people were talking about making a two-state solution to cause peace. This is going to the absolute opposite to that. Then you have to look at how it's not quite balanced in the sense that this Ayelet Shaked, the woman who's proposing this, she has spoken already about how... She wants to have laws, Israeli law, to cover the whole of Israel. Now, there are certain laws in the West Bank that don't apply to the rest of Israel. There are certain laws of Israel that don't apply to the West Bank. There are laws in Judea, Samaria. There's no common law that covers them all. There are different civil laws, different employment laws. She, by the sounds of it, is trying to consolidate the whole area into, into one. Well, I was going to say that, that ultimately what Jewish Home wants to do is to annex most of the West Bank and to ensure there is never any Palestinian state. That is their that is their long-term goal. Now, while there are plenty of criticisms of the push towards getting a two-state solution at the moment, I do worry about the idea that somebody would say there can never, ever be any separation. So if that's the case, what's the alternative? If we're saying that it's actually OK that this ruling has happened because you know Jewish Home ultimately wants to ensure there is never a Palestinian state, OK, but what's the alternative to that state? Look, I completely agree that the two-state solution... If whether you agree with the two state solution or not, it is in the best interest of Israel, because if we do open it up and, and compl- I have to admit that this idea would completely stop any possibility of a two state solution. Absolutely. And if we did have that, we would then have to have to give two and a half million votes to Palestinians. That could be the end of the Israeli government, which is a worry. But. That I don't really want to support something purely on the basis. I think there's got to be some kind of somewhere we can find that does suit all because it, it there is inequalities in Israel at the moment, so and this is really addressing saying, these inequalities. So, you're really saying that, really, to think about it quite seriously, there will never be any form of peace between the Palestinians and the Israelis. This is what you're saying, what you're suggesting. He's probably um, not wrong, actually, because I don't know that the Palestinians... or It's not the run-of-the-mill Palestinians, as I said before, about the run-of-the-mill Israelis. It's not them. It's their so-called leaders who are just so narrow-minded, if you like, or just don't want to have peace. They just want war because that's the way they are. You know, it's endemic in their tribal makeup that they just want to fight each other. Exactly. My four decades on this planet, yet to see anything close to peace out there. So when you say, do you think there'll never be peace? It's very hard to see it. There will be. 
Why not? Because, Why as not? Andy said... They don't want it. It appears that certainly the leaders... For example, the Palestinian Authority don't seem to want peace because anything that's been offered to them is being rejected. But there needs to be more and more and more discussion until eventually a way is found that will appeal to both sides. OK, I do agree in principle on that, but I'd be interested to see what you all think on how long do we do this for? How long do we go on trying and trying and giving and giving and giving? When well, do we stop? To. Where does this stop? Where where do we do we ever get to the stage where we think you know what this isn't working? We need to start thinking about our own concerns. This is all very well, but I mean, if I could possibly just just return to this one issue, which is about retroactively legalizing these settlements. I mean, if the Supreme Court of the country has said these outposts are illegal, and if in effect then the government ends up saying that they're legal. It's going to be very hard to say, you know, Israel is fully in accord with the rule of law. I mean, to be in accord with the rule of law, you know, your government will have to listen to what the Supreme Court, which is independence, is saying. And that's what that's another thing which is very worrying about this ministerial committee. It doesn't it it seems to be sort of almost bypassing the Supreme Court altogether. And I don't think I don't see how that's going to be good for Israel's image at all. I don't see how they're going to do it. Actually, well, yeah, you, know, you know, just to prove as well that this isn't some kind of lefty liberal spasm of anti-Israel hatred or anything like that. You know, this is opposed by Netanyahu. It's opposed by Avigdor Lieberman. No, no one would describe Benjamin Netanyahu as a demented lefty. No. Yeah, he's standing out very strongly against this, and it, it seems very, very bizarre. And that says something quite extraordinary because Netanyahu is against it. Then that really says something very important. I just don't think that it should happen, and certainly not retrospectively. You cannot suddenly say, well, you know, it was OK. It wasn't OK 10 minutes ago, but now we've decided we're going to change the whole system. You know, it's a bit like Brexit, really. It's very like Brexit. But how far do you want to take this? Because, I mean, you, you're all saying, but the Supreme Court said you can't you can't do it retrospectively. So I seem to remember homosexuality, abortion. They were all illegal. Things change. Things move on. Situational. Yeah, but, but they've moved on. They haven't done it retrospectively. They haven't pardoned all those people that got put into jail because they were homosexual and because of what they did. They haven't sort of gone anywhere about that. We've got a message here from Lyndon. Good evening here from Merthyr Tidville, South Wales. Oh, An wow. avid listener to your Sunday programme, perhaps a bit different from your regular listeners, as I'm not of your faith. I'm a practising Christian, Roman Catholic. With great interest in Jewish faith, etc. But sorry to say, at one stage in the life of Israel, one day you will have to make peace and a two-state system. Clive is right, but some of you are negative, as Israel has to come to terms that both peoples will have to share the country. Well, that seems a very, very sensible thing to say. Do you not think so, Jeremy? The long-term goal is separation, because quite simply... The status quo is not sustainable, and in fact, you know, the mainstream in Israel very much thinks that. Even even people in Jewish home think that. There are millions of Arabs in the, in the West Bank. Israel doesn't want to ultimately exercise direct or indirect control over their lives. Now, they're not going to become Israeli citizens. You're not going to, if you're going to have one system of law across the West Bank, and Israel is going to end up taking it over, then you have to offer citizenship and residency rights to the Palestinians. That's not going to happen for demographic reasons. Therefore. In the long term, we don't know how it's going to happen. It's going to be immensely hard to happen. But there's got to be some separation between Israelis and Palestinians. Territorial separation, political separation. And if Israel starts doing things like taking out posts in an area that's going to be part of the West Bank and saying, in effect, they're legal, 
then it's completely undercutting that. What it should be doing is saying, look, the only areas where there'll be a growth in settlements is going to be in those blocks that will become part of Israel, that will become annexed to Israel. Everywhere else that is a potential Palestinian state, I think what they should say actually there is that there's going to be a complete freeze in those areas. And if need be even, you know, settlements, you know settlers can come a, a, into the parts that will become part of Israel. But there's got to be separation and there has to be a strategy. And I'm afraid for years it's a, it's a legit, legitimate criticism to say that possibly that's not happened, but it needs to happen now. And I'm afraid this decision rather undercuts that. Do you genuinely think if we were to hand them the West Bank, we'd have peace? No. So why would we do it? Because it has to be done. It just has to be done. But because why? Because we're still going to have fighting whether we're there or whether we're not there, whether we take over, whether we don't take over. Because, as I said before, a lot of the Hamas and all the others don't particularly want peace. Yeah. They want to take over Israel. You know, they've said it in the past. They want to wipe us into the sea. And... They're not going to stop until that's happened. And that's my point exactly. And I just feel very upset about the whole thing. But as thing. Jeremy pointed out earlier, there are many, 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 many Palestinians, as there are many, many, many Israelis, who are quite happy to live in a two-state solution. Absolutely. But please, 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 Liz, we, we are being... Look, if I want to be idealistic about this... I'm not right wing when it comes to my views on Israel. I'm pretty left wing. I would love to think there was a possibility of a peaceful two state solution. But I just feel like you're all being idealistic. The reality of it is we give it to them their West Bank, the Golan Heights. What, what's what's going to change? Nothing. The only thing that's changed, we've given more of our land away. Keep doing that. They will drive also, us into the also sea. Not only giving a lot of our land away, but also what you're saying is we're causing more and more and more death. Not just death who, of Israelis. No, 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 no. Who, who's, causing well. who's causing this death? As well. Who is causing this death, though? I agree with you that to hand the West Bank back tomorrow, if you liked it, to, to the rule of the PA would be a total disaster. No one in my mind is suggesting that. You should be rather hawkish when the other side is being as intransigent as Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinians are being. What I'm saying is, in the long term, the perspective of two, three decades, the status quo isn't sustainable. How you get to the, the destination, which is having a separation of the two sides and having quasi-Palestinian statehood, how you get there is going to be immensely complicated. But I don't think we should ever say that there can never be any territorial change. That's the point I'm making. But would, by doing this, would this not force their hand to actually react and think, well, hang on a minute, this isn't going the way we wanted. Maybe we do need to sit back down at the table and, and work things out. We just give them what they no, want. You know as well as, as well as I do, that's just the opposite to what they would do. They will be... I'm not so sure. I think force has been respected in the past and weakness has been taken advantage of in the past. Israel has to be strong. Israel cannot show weaknesses. As soon as they show weaknesses, the entire planet jumps on them. We can't afford to do that. The reason Israel is still in existence is because we've had to stay strong through With adversity. even the Prime Minister of Israel against this, surely the whole planet will be against us if it does happen. Oh, no, the whole planet, they'll just the go against, against us anyway. They'll go against Netanyahu just for the sake of it. But they're against us anyway. So, you know, we're, we're sort of between the devil and the deep blue sea. Whatever they do, if they're going to do one thing, it's wrong. And if they do something else, it's wrong. I agree with Jeremy that... 
it has to somehow. I'm never. I'm not saying that there should never be a two-state solution, because I think there probably should. But it's how you work at it, and by doing this, by by retrospectively saying, you know, that these people are legal. That is so wrong, and it's like a red rag to a bull. Can I just say, Lyndon has made another comment here. Oh, right. Perhaps a judgment of Solomon is very much needed. What a absolutely, I a love it. That's a brilliant way to end this discussion. I love that. My thanks to our guests, journalist and author Jeremy Havadi, and community volunteer Andy Lucas. And please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. Or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews. Or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Well, it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi, UK. This year of 2016, I should say, has been all about surprises. Whether Leicester City winning the premiership... On a more serious note, the Brexit vote and, of course, more recently, the Trump election. Now, obviously, Leicester is a separate question, but I believe the other two cases are linked by a common thread, which I think links to this Shabbat. It was pointed out to me that the Brexit campaign was built on hope, while the Remain campaign was built on fear. It's not for one to say whether the hope being promised by Brexit may have been false and the fear by Remain may have been true. The simple fact is this was the strategy of the two camps. Similarly in America, Trump was about make America great again. Again, it's irrelevant whether or not you believe he can or if it's important. The simple fact was that so much of his campaign, not the debates, what was said on the road to the people was visionary similar to how Brexit put their case to the UK populace. The Democrats focused mainly on stopping Trump, and all the adverts I saw leading up to the election were painting an apocalyptic picture, if he got in, playing to our fears. In both cases, vision and hope beat fear and trepidation. Again, this is not a political statement, saying therefore that Brexit and Trump were good and Remain and Clinton were bad. It's simply using the idea that hope beats fear. And therefore, looking at this Shabbat, there's a beautiful link. Because, of course, Parshat Vayera deals with the very difficult chapter of the Akedah, of the sacrifice of Isaac, where, of course, Abraham feared what would happen to his son. But, of course, the whole episode ends with a tremendous sense of optimism and hope. As God says to Abraham, do not touch the lad. and makes him realize that it's just a test and that Isaac will go on to be one of the leaders of the Jewish people. And again, the idea of the whole Akedah is to give us hope in the future, that despite how dark things may appear, there is always light around the corner. And Akedah, the Yitzchak, gives us that hope. And hopefully, the world around us can give us that hope as well. Thank you to Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi UK with our Thought for the Week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Laura Marks and Dan Rickman, Victoria Sturman, Sam Cohen and Ashley Fulton. Thanks also to the Schmooze team, Jeremy Havadi and Andy Lucas. And of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. 
You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can listen to all previous editions by searching for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.